Um, Usually I give a little intro, but I just want to read from the text today. So would you pay attention? Hebrews 1, and I'm going to jump down to verse 7 and give you some examples of this. It says this. This should be familiar if you've been around Christian circles for a while. It says this. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Then jumping down to the example of Noah. By faith, verse 7, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he, uh, he condemned the world and became heir of righteousness that is in keeping with the faith. And so we recall the moments of Noah building an ark when everyone said he was being ridiculous. Abraham, in verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in a promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were their heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city with foundations. Do you see the, the imagination for bringing to material in your mind what is not material quite yet? A city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful, he who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and as, and as good as dead, uh, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and countless as the sand on the seashore. I'm going to do one more. Verse 13, continuing in Hebrews. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had, not, if they had been thinking of a country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, numerous people are mentioned as having done great steps of confidence in God because he promised something to them. And by faith, you and I all jumped in our vehicles this morning, drove here, believing that that vehicle would get you here. By faith, I set all my stuff on this table because I believe that it is structurally sound enough to hold the weight of what's going on in this. By faith, I used my debit card last night to pay for something, and thankfully it worked. By faith, I got into a giant metal tube with wings, stared down at the clouds as it took me across the country or across an ocean. Anyone else stare out the window of an airplane and think, this is insanity that we do this, right? You get the point of, of kind of what I'm saying, but let me do one more. Back to the relation with the car. The other day, by faith, I jumped in my vehicle and I was going to the gym, so I was dressed like I was going to the gym. And it didn't occur to me about halfway there that if something happened to my car, I'm a dead person. I got shorts on, I got a t-shirt on, because it's easy to go from my, my house into my car, my car into the gym, but I... I didn't realize until I was out there, like, it's negative two degrees. This is a deadly environment for somebody with their chicken legs out in the middle of a winter storm. And I thought to myself, maybe next time I'm not going to have as much faith in this. I'm going to put a jacket in at least in case something happens. So when it does, I'll be ready for it. And so there's a moment that in that example where I'm both extending a sense of faith, but I'm also extending a sense of lack of faith because I'm not sure in this condition, in the environment now, sometimes cars don't start. Sometimes doors get sealed shut, right? That's new to me, having come in from a desert, but now these are things I'm having to adjust what I would have put my faith in outrightly. And so I, at times, act in faith with that, and at times I don't act in faith. And so my, my point is, is that we all put our faith in all kinds of things, right? You've done it, I've done it. We all put our faith, whether it's passive like this, I didn't really think about this, but I've had experience with this table, knowing that it's held all the stuff before. This isn't a huge amount of weight. I could lean on I could probably stand on it and change a light bulb if I needed to, because I have witnessed that. And your life operates in all kinds of realms of faith, 
throughout your day, throughout all of the different events that take place and all the different environments that you walk in. And the question never is never, never, never is do you have faith? It is always what are you putting your faith in? It's not this religious thing. It's not just a spiritual thing to have, quote, faith. It is specifically a human thing. And we come to understand that faith is, a, is an expression of what we put our confidence in. In fact, I, I, don't, I don't do this a lot, but what I wanted to do is just as an example of this, put the Greek word for, uh, in the New Testament for faith, it is pistis. Um, and there's lots of different various ways in which it can be applied, in which it tends to be um, in its existence. And can you just go ahead and put all of them up there? I don't know if you have the... We have faith, we have belief, we have trust, we have confidence, we have reliance, allegiance, and faithfulness, which is where the translation tends to come. So, so imagine this word, they call it like a, um, a semantic domain. It has a range of possible meanings, all that point back to this idea. So it's anchored in something, but can be applied in different ways, has this way in which you can think about it, or, or flexibility in which it makes sense in your life. And so a better definition for faith than we tend to use is that faith is confidence grounded in reality. I want you to hear that one more time. Faith is confidence grounded in reality. What we tend to hear is it's like a blind jump into the darkness. And there is sometimes blindness to it. There is also sometimes darkness. Believing something without having any evidence at all that we tend to hear. In fact, there's a Quaker, his name is Elton Trueblood, and he famously said this, faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. Faith is not belief without proof, but trust without reservation. And so you're like, well, didn't you just read it? That's what the scripture just said. Isn't it assurance about what we do not see? And the answer to that is, yeah, I mean, again, we just read it, but the writer of Hebrews, what he does next is just as important as that opening line. He gives you case study after story, after narrative, after example of all kinds of people in history who walked out in faith. Why do you think he's doing that? He wants you to know that there are people have seen, who have seen it reasonable to make this jump and it worked for them. There are, there are places in which they saw the, the intangible was tangible and they stepped out in it because they had confidence in the God who is making this promise for them. So maybe it's an outcome, but case studies and stories and the ways in which we have seen other people trust is a kind of proof that we get to lean on. We see the fruits of somebody else's faith and it encourages us. We see somebody else jump out and it gives us something to grasp onto because it's something reasonable that we can stand on. And so faith can not be boiled down to just believing um, in, 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 uh, or, or just stepping out blindly, although sometimes it does ask us to step blindly, Amen. The second thing that I wanted us to do is just as we're looking at these different aspects of faith is to establish this idea that faith can't be boiled down to just believing the right things. For a long time, that's the predominant idea. Belief is just knowing the right set of doctrines. And I want you to hear me say, I love doctrines. I think what we believe about God is very important. But it's different to say I have an organized set of beliefs of what I think, ideas, and they're all in this nice systematic theology, and you can have those things settled here and never ever act on it. Can you think of a handful of people that maybe have done that? Have you done that? Like it's, it is both this idea of somehow cultivating the imagination for what you don't initially see because you have seen evidence of God's, uh, 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 the ability to put confidence in God's reality, Right? And so the Bible's like, hey, here, give me, I'm going to give you stories. I'm going to show you how over a long period of time, the things that were promised here landed over here, and it all came true. Do you see all of these things? See all the connections? Have you all seen that graphic that's floating around right now? Like, it's a bunch of arch colors, and it's showing where in the Old Testament a promise was made and where it was fulfilled in the New Testament. I'll try to circulate that if you haven't seen it. But it is, this graphic is both beautiful and so truth-telling. Wow. 
I can't believe anything on earth, anyone on this planet could ever accomplish the level of correspondence, of corroboration that the Old Testament has created with the New Testament. So there's this sense of faith, but you also don't just get to stand on these things and say, well, I I think all the right things. Here's a list of belief statements. I need you to agree with them, and if you do that, then you're a follower of Jesus. But in reality, we know that there's a formation aspect, a, a cyclical idea idea of thinking ideas, stepping out on them, understanding them better, of having experience that synergizes with this, um, uh, I have ideas of who you are, God, I'm going to test that out in confidence and see what happens in these revolving, kind of growing, revolutionary idea wherein you start to see God emerge in it. If you don't ever put these things into action, Right? And the old youth group thing is true, right? I can tell you this chair is solid, but until you sit on it, have you actually believed that it can hold you? There's a difference here between entertaining theories and exercising faith, right? You see what I'm saying? So if faith is built into the human psyche and you're trusting things all the time based on your experience, based on the experience of others, based on the testimonies of others, based on the things that you've seen and done, maybe based on your uh, faith in a particular science or medical doctor or something. I'm not saying these things are bad. Don't hear me say that. I'm saying that there is a way in which we build faith into all things then you almost have to like wonder, what are you prioritizing? What is the thing that you put your faith most in, especially when you walk through a wilderness? And often, you know, our culture says it's you. You put your, your faith in you. You put your faith um, in, in modernism and scientific method, and there's a way in which God has given us that to use. But the prioritization of these things It's so much more than a scientific method. It is this invitation that Jesus has extended to all of us. If you want to know more about it, then come follow me. If you want to learn what it means to engage with the Son of God, then come follow me. If you want to learn what it means to do even greater things than I have done, then come follow me. And this following thing, it's, it's like I'm just trying to help you see it can't be boiled down to kind of these extremes where we just want to say it's all proof or just not proof at all. It's all experience or not experience at all. It's all what you believe or not anything that you believe. And Jesus is like, no, this is like messy and tension-filled and it looks more like a relationship that says, just come follow me. Yeah, you can read some books and learn some great things. You can have that conversation and learn some great, just come follow me and I will make you fishers of people. And so this invitation to us looks more like a journey, right? And it's built in this faith um, flexibility of, of, of all the different things that we named up there. And as we go on this journey, as we agree to say, God, I will follow you, or God, I want to be formed by you. Um, and, and the interesting thing is God's like, I want to form you, so follow me so that you can become like me. It's, and, and so we're, we're putting this confidence in a God grounding ourselves in a person in increasing measure. So we're all in different places, amen? Not only that, we're all compartmentalized in different areas of our faith and all of those different areas aren't in the same place and you might be really awesome at one aspect of faith and I'm not good at it, but I'm good at this one and you aren't and so I'm following you here and you're following me over there and we're all seeing a group of people do this well and like, oh, we we really need each other inside of this community and so this invitation is like, come follow me and I will make you fish in the men, but I need you to have a community of people so that you can actually model yourself after who I am And and the crazy thing about a journey is that it does require us to learn from each other and to have moments of, hey, follow me. I'm really good working through these brushes, but I'm not so good about crossing rivers. In fact, I'm kind of afraid of water. And someone's like, oh, I'm great at swimming. Come, let's do this. Come on, hold my hand. We'll get it. Take the first step. We'll get you across this river. And so we have this community of people that we're also trying to learn from. And I say this because this journey It doesn't just happen in one instant, in one decision. It happens in a moment 
that takes a bunch of moments and brings them together over a period of time. That through moments of resistance training, right? Climbing up the hills and going down into the valleys, hiking next to each other, sometimes going through the valley of the shadow of death and at other times walking near quiet waters where things seem easy into the deserts with thorns, with the wild animals and the temptations to trust someone or something other than God. That's what Jesus did. The temptation was... Trust me, not God, not your father, not the one who just called you son. Trust me, I'll give you everything you see. Didn't he say angels would protect you? Just jump off this edge. And Jesus was like, no, this this isn't how this is supposed to go. I know who's prioritized. I know who I'm supposed to be in relationship with, and it's not you, Satan. And so what I want you to see is, and to buy into is, This cycle of growth, I have a little picture, it's a very simple picture, but what I I was tempted to do is to name what is around this cycle. And then I realized, I'm going to name a few options in a little bit, but right now what I want you to see is that the, 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 um, the fellowship of Christ, the invitation that he gives us is to enter into different types of cycles. At our church, we revolve around three things, devotion, community, and mission. And so... I start with devotion, and I get a little good at that, and then I go into community, and I learn from you all, and then I go into mission, and I take that outside of who I am, and then I realize as I encounter someone, they ask a question, and I don't know that. My devotion hasn't grown there yet, so I go back to the Word of God, and I learn some devotion, and I read his Bible, and I grow in my faith. Then I learn from my community, and then I go out and do those things. It's this endless cycle that actually has no destination. Growth is the point. You can, there's different models of this. You can identify sin in your life, repent, lean on the grace, move back towards wholeness. And then you identify another moment of your life or a thing in your life that's sin, repent. You can go with the Kairos circle. These are models that are really popular out there. Notice a point where you, God is trying to show you something. Then you admit that to a friend of yours. There's community. Then you together decide through that moment, what is the best plan of helping me get better at that? So next time I encounter that test or that temptation, I do it better than I did before. And so it's this cycle that moves up and then up and then up. But make no mistake, it's still a cycle. Jamar Tisby in his book, How to Fight Racism, gives us awareness, relationships, and commitment. Do you see how this works? All formation, all faith journeys are a kind of cycle, and we don't always get that satisfaction of like, I made it to the promised land. But I just read all these who were still living by faith when they died, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. We get to stand on the shoulders of people who have been through this cycle before and stayed the course, kept the faith until the end of their time on earth. So one thing we often forget, and this is obviously a cliche, and it's attributed to a hundred different people. I don't, you can, you can take your pick. I think Emerson was one that I saw. The journey is not just the means by which we arrive at a destination. The journey is a destination. All right, think about that. The journey is not just the means by which we arrive at a destination. The journey is a destination. Now, I want to put a little asterisk on there and say maybe not the final destination, but it is a legitimate destination nonetheless, and we need to recognize it and be intentional about staying present in it so that we don't miss what God is trying to do in it. If formation is a goal of the church, then you can't get so caught up in final conclusions so much so that you forget to exist in the present forming. This is how relationships are built. And again, we forget that this is a relationship of faith. There's often confusion in the cycle. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. There's often frustration in the journey and this process where we look at God and come on, parents, hear me say it. Are we there yet? I just watched that movie yesterday or two days ago. Uh, God's answer is more gracious than mine or ice cubes in that movie. (laughs) Because he lovingly turns around 
and says, just trust me. The road trip is part of this. We forget that, right? Our road trips are almost always a, a, an end to the means. And he's looking back and he's like, look, hang out with each other, laugh, get some snacks and go to the restroom when we need to, take the pit stops when you have to deal, but, but, but ultimately deal with your lack of control over this vehicle because I'm in charge. We break bread together. We listen to the playlist together. You're going to hear songs that I like that you don't. I'm going to listen to songs that you like that I don't. Maybe we're going to sing along to these songs together. I don't know, but the point is there is something to be had on the road trip not just getting so hyper-focused on the destination that we don't enjoy all the relationship building that happens in that moment. Now, okay, so it, let me admit, that's a silly illustration, but whenever you map out a faith journey, I want us to understand we have to be reminded that that liminal space, that unknown spot isn't a bad place, and there is something to learn. There is often something to be shed and let go of. It's never linear. And, and honestly, I just want to, I, I, I kind of want to apologize for that. I want it too. How many of you in here are like, I don't like change. Stay away from me. I don't even like this question because you changed the format. I wanted to shake your hand and walk away like I normally do. It's not linear. I'm sorry. I, I don't like it all the time. It's almost always messy and confusing. An aspect of faith is getting used to being comfortable with the messiness and the not knowing and the gray space and the fear, but also mixed with excitement that you don't know what God might do next. That there are variables outside of your control, but it might end up better than you ever thought it could have imagined when you relinquish control and surrender to this God. And when Jesus said, come follow me to Peter, he clearly didn't know what he was getting into. You can see it in the, in the faith journey that we get the tiniest little glimpse of the observational ability to see that this was definitely confusing for Peter. It definitely gets harder and better at times. And you're just like, I don't know if it, is Peter faithful? I mean, you love him, but then you're denying him. You're b busting out swords, cutting off people's ears. Like that seems like a panic move. If there ever was a panic move, it's more challenging than he realized, scarier, but it was also more rewarding than he ever could have imagined. What would it be like to be Peter when you see Jesus die. Everything you put your trust in, every element of this faith journey was placed on this person and now he's dead. Do you think he had the imagination for resurrection? I don't know. But I know he wasn't expecting a death and a crucifixion and then a resurrection. In fact, if he knew it, he would just walk away, right? It would have been too hard. I thought we were here to make fishers of men. I thought it was going to be easy. I thought you were just going to zap me and then I could do this thing, right? Like, Reel some people in, let's do this. But it looked more like a journey of formation. And honestly, if we knew everything, we'd walk away as well, right? Um, this, this, um, this invitation for this morning is to recognize this. Like if you've been a part of church circles, I might be bringing some nuance to something, but for the most part, you've heard this before. You know this is a faith thing. You know this is a journey um, you know that, in fact, that's what you probably signed up for, and it helps us knowing that when we go through these ups and downs and the arounds and the twists and the turns or the wilderness moment where we've just circled around over and over. And so what I want to do today is reintroduce us to that commitment here at Common Ground. That even in our midst as a church, and if you're, if you're new here, you're about to learn a, a good chunk about what our church values, um, but we have been on multiple journeys together um, over a really long period of time uh, with, with these very strong convictions kind of guiding us and becoming this uh, um, value system for what we want to uh, accomplish here. And so we have this very strong conviction of this organic paradigm inside of our church that we embraced years ago, built into us um, through, through the original planting church. Jeff Krajewski, the, the lead pastor over at Midtown, built this into us. Something that drew me to this church that works itself out in a few different ways. We have a house church network here. We have, um, and if you heard me say we have small groups, then you don't know what a house church network is, Right? There's an organic paradigm that involves inside of it that we on our smallest cellular basis are working out and have autonomy to work out our pillars of devotion, community, and mission. We have a decentralized leadership structure here. That's unique to Common Ground Northeast. We, we are elder-led, not lead pastor or senior pastor-led. 
We, we, when you come to me and you say, hey, Pastor Eric, you hear me say things like, just call me Eric. And there is a constituent in here that's like, that's right. That's how it should be. But I've come to learn as I've interacted with other cultures that we don't all view leadership the same, right? That we don't always have this sense of um, appreciation for a structure set up that others might have. And often we build our structure, albeit I believe it to be a biblical sound anchoring, but is it possible that in the instinct of trying to decentralize leadership, we've done it as a, as a um, response to having seen abuse inside of churches? And so we built a whole structure around this idea of making sure that person in charge can't do that. Amen. I'm not good at being a senior pastor anyways, if I'm honest with you. And I mean that. I, I believe that. I'm not good at being like, run into a situation, take charge, and everyone follow me, and cutting out the people that disagree. I'm just, if I wanted to be that person, I can't. I'm not good at it. And so I think that there's something here, but I also think maybe in the midst of running after that, we've demonized other types of structures. We have this commitment to becoming a church that steps into justice and reconciliation conference, specifically revolving around racism in the American context. We've been on this journey for a real long time. So how, I, I don't know how long, seven, at least seven years. I know that number's been, is it longer? Anyone who's been around for longer than I have? I'm five years into this journey with this church, but they were on this route way longer than I was. And we've been doing this through book studies. We've been doing this through bringing in people who can run workshops to bring awareness to these things going on. We have been doing this in ways that would center classes on, on cultural negotiation and all kinds of different things that we've done, having guides come in and help us out. We've hosted Justice and Reconcile conferences here inside of our own spot. Uh, but, but then we took that even a couple steps further and we were saying, we don't want this to be an elective that you could just passively take or leave. So then we began to build it into our discipleship structures. So if you become a part of our church, you go through discipleship one, and it has the basics of systemic racism and justice and reconciliation. We built it into our cycle of teaching. So at least once a year, you're going to hear a sermon series just on that. Inside of our statement of faith, before I even got here, there was a statement that was added to it to understand that this is not an elective thing, but something central to the gospel understanding of who Jesus is. We built it into our teaching norms and into the way in which we even create our sermons. If you, know, if you don't know what I mean by that, what I mean is we have created a situation where I have all the commentaries that I could possibly need that step outside of just the typical white norms that are offered to us, right? So when you ask that question, what do you typically read? How do you study for it? I went back and looked at all of my notes and all of my teaching and all of my commentaries and realized they were all white men. That had to change. And so Common Ground said, change that. You have the resources to change that. So we build that. We have a preaching collective wherein not just me in a silo creating sermons that would just benefit one demographic, but Jody comes in and helps with the gender perspective and Pastor Ken comes in and helps with that. And then we rotate things around so that there is this sense wherein every sermon is being built inside of this uh, diverse kind of community, at least to what we have in our reach now, now if, again, if you've been around, you've heard me say this, that at times these two worlds collide. The organic instinct and interacting with different cultures don't always agree, and there's a tension sometimes, and I just feel like it's partly my job to live in it and work that tension out. And this is maybe old news, like if you've been here for a while, you're like, dude, you're just... Of course, this is, I mean, this is common ground. You're just telling us what we already said yes to. But if you haven't been around for a while, I think it's possible that you need to be brought up to speed on this. And in fact, as we're jumping into this new year, um, we went into it in the last couple of months of 2023, surveying people in our congregation, asking leaders what they think about what are the goods and bads and shortcomings and things we need to work on. We, we had um, interviews with certain, uh, like a sample set inside of our church so we could get a really good understanding of some of these things. And what we realized is that there is a good bit of confusion around some of these ideas. 
And so today what we're wanting to do is to bring a sense of clarity to those things, but I wanted to do so first by reminding us all, we don't always get clarity on everything. I'm not copping out, buy into this, I'm not going to end here, but if you remember two years ago, I stood before you and essentially preached the same message. And I said, so here is point A, and the the classic leadership paradigm is make sure you paint a picture for your organization, your congregation, that you have to create a clear cut, a clean cut from the old place that you were so that you can lead them into point B, which is a crystal clear picture of the future location that you're going to, and we admitted to you, we don't actually always know what this next step is. It's a, it's a promised land. I have imagination for what some of these things could be, but Pastor Ken and I were just sitting here like thinking to, to, to you all, this is a faith journey that we're on and it requires cycles of relational interaction. We don't always have a clear cut, all right, that city, that land, that's the place you're going to go to because the faith journey just requires for us not to always know. And so that was our admission to you. But we were willing to go on that faith journey together and to do it with all of us here in this room. We found that Revelation 7, 9, that the banquet table in heaven will have every tribe, tongue, and nation sitting at it. And so an all-white congregation just will not do. Amen. We find ourselves in the midst of a neighborhood that is rapidly changing in diversity. And so just being a white congregation will not do. But if we're honest, there's a lot of ground to cover. And, I, and, I, and at times I'm like, Dude, I can't give you any more clarity than Abraham had when he stepped out and Lot followed him into this unknown place. There are times that I feel like I can't give you any more clarity than Moses could as he's wandering around in this desert because he didn't always know what was next. He was just trying to step out in faith. But I want to hand you this. Still, there were moments where God said, but go to Mount Sinai. He gives him a, like a pit stop. It's not the end. Here's, here, I want you to go over, I don't know, go to that cactus. Whatever it happened to be, I don't know all of them. By the banks of Jordan, we do know some. And then we know as we look back that there was a cyclical kind of thing that was happening. And so what I want to do today as we end today's sermon, and I'm just going to kind of rapid fire uh, as, um, as I can in this, um, in this context um, with the few minutes that we have left, um, but I'm also inviting if you want clarity and clarification on these things beyond what I can offer you because I just can't, is, um, is to follow up with me and contact me. We also have um, some other leadership meetings in the, in the books already so we can create avenues for that as well. My first point of clarity that I want to do is just to remind you that we don't always get clarity. We want it, we seek it, we desire it, but God says, just trust me. And so as clearly as I can say, we are on a journey just like that. The next point of clarity though, is that when we are seeking justice and reconciliation in our values, there's always this, well, are you, are you trying to be multi-ethnic? Or are you trying to be a justice and reconciliation church? Do you wanna be an anti-racist church? Do you wanna be, and I'm telling you yes, to all of those things. And, and, and let me give, I think the question often is revolving around, are you just trying to be a more aware white church? Or do you wanna blend your congregation with other ethnicities, other backgrounds? I think we're intentionally trying to bring awareness to white people so that they can go into their communities, participate both in awareness and activation towards anti-racist tendencies. That is definitely, if you're here, that is a goal I am attempting to do. My discipleship for this purpose at this church definitely intends to do that. But we're also praying for, trying to make room for, as we sang this morning, making changes here in this context, taking cues from our black and brown leaders that are around us to become a more hospitable gathering for blended multi-ethnic congregation. I hope that excites you. We believe that the calling of Revelation 7 and 9 is here and now, and we're watching the community around us change, and so it is an obligation for our congregation to become more like that. But my third point of clarity is to answer this question, then what do we need to do? Have you asked that question to yourself? 
<laughs> it's the most often question I get asked. Once there's a moment of awareness, what do I do next? I don't know what to do next. And there's a lot of ways we could engage that, but the best way I can here, just again in the few minutes, is it needs a little bit of framing, and I want to address it on both a personal and a public or congregational level is better. The framing is this. It's not like you can just create a list of do's and don'ts. It's not like you can just say, here's everything all in one fell swoop. It's like this commitment of being in community with people over and over during a, a, a long amount of time wherein you rub up against something and you're like, oh, I didn't think that was such a big deal to me, but now that you're saying it should change, there's something in me that's resistant. And then you're like, that's a thing we need to talk about. And then you live with someone for a long amount of time, you're in community with people and you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that thing that I said was offensive. Please teach me. So, so it's harder than just this framework of just give me a plotting list of all the things that I need to do in order to make this right. It comes up in real relational time as we rub up against each other. And so the, the admonition is to become a person in community with people not like you so that you can rub up against each other. So there's a personal answer that I want to give to this. Um, some of this is your discernment and your fight and your understanding of what niche is the Holy Spirit calling me to do, pushing back on racism in your relationships, in your circles of influence, in your jobs, in your family units. And by God's grace, I want to tell you, I hear wins on that front all the time. I, re I really want you to hear that. It's, it's harder to see here, right? But I know there are people who went to Thanksgiving dinner and heard Uncle Bob say something crazy and they're like, Uncle Bob, you can't say that. And it felt awkward, and it felt embarrassing, and it felt whatever it might have felt, but they had the courage in that moment to say it and to push back. I hear those stories regularly. I know stories about people who are in the education system making sure that there is equity established for multiple different people, not just the ones who tend to get asked, hey, would you like to bump up to the honors class? Well, hey, how come there's all these other kids who aren't in the honors class? Their grades show it. Hey, did you ever get asked to be in the honors class? No. Oh, I wonder, I wonder why. I hear stories from people all the time from different realms of influence wherein they had the courage to do it. Keep doing that. Keep doing that. Because you don't always, it's, I can't tell other people's stories for you. There's times where I'm like, man, I really want to tell that story, but it'd be awkward. Jamar Tisby's book, How to Fight Racism, I feel like is, it's one that we've always wanted to put on the books as a required reading for our church, and I am encouraging you um, and asking you all to begin reading it. If you've been on this track for a while, the first chapter, the first section is going to be fairly obvious to you. Keep going. The second two chapters and the introduction of the cycle, awareness, relationship, and commitment are powerful. Okay, so that's an assignment right here. In fact, in our church over the next few days or the next few months, we're going to introduce that in different various levels out of our church. But congregationally, what it looks like is for us to continue to build into the cycle of teaching that we've already established, opportunities for awareness that we've already established, teaching rhythms that we've already established, resource rhythms for us as teachers that we've already established. It includes bringing in speakers, diverse worship leaders until we have a stronger representation of those who can speak and lead inside of our church and they jump in. We've established a Sunday revamp team to help bring some more excitement and energy into our services, but also to recalibrate this pace, this atmosphere, and have a hand in helping us fortify the diversity values inside of our vision mission statement on the grounds of race and gender and generation like we saw today. We're going to continue to engage cultural negotiations, which includes placing our practices at the deepest level structures in our church, our budget tends to revolve around, sometimes even unknowingly, white norms. And times that Pastor Ken and I are like, I wouldn't spend that much money on this. I'd put my money in this thing. And then he's like, no, man, like, you got to put your money in that thing and not this thing. And there's this negotiation that we have to go in because we actually had different values depending on who was in our congregation and the makeup of the people inside of that thing. And so we want to interrogate that, for lack of a better term. How, how one, one gap that we've noticed inside of this is how, uh, how we practice communion is very directly um, positioned inside of the restoration movement, which is where our church came from. 
And so we're not abandoning the ideas of that, but we want to say, hey, what do different liturgies express on communion? You're actually going to hear me teach on communion next week, and we're going to introduce a once-a-month rhythm instead of every single week, and we're going to do it um, in, a, in a larger sense, 10 minutes at a time where we get a devo, and we actually get to learn about a different practice of communion inside of that. Inside of our house churches, we're not, listen to me, I love house churches, I love organic thinking, but some of those things have to be negotiated because there are some of them that are built into cultural paradigms, and as we introduce people to come into the most intimate parts of our life, right, come to my house without realizing that all of our jokes revolve around a culturally specific thing that I'm situated in. That all my foods that I offer someone could very well be something that is very unfamiliar. That the art on my walls could be, without even realizing it, very white and uncomfortable to someone that might say, you know, I, I trust you, I love you. And so the idea is like, can we just meet on neutral ground at the church first? Give us that for a little bit. From, from how we practice and understand paradigms of authority that I talked about before. Again, don't hear that we're dropping those things, but I've had to culturally negotiate organic principles before. We were going to, in New Orleans, completely dismantle our Sunday gathering and just be a house church network because that was our conviction, and by golly, we're going to do it. And then we had a conversation with a few Catholic brothers and sisters, and they're like, that looks like a cult. We're never coming to that. That's super weird. I know it's in the New Testament. Thank you. I read Acts 2. That's weird. And we had to say, okay, there is still some negotiation that needs to happen here. So it's not the first time doing this. Negotiating leadership paradigms, asking how, we, uh, how and why and what built our reasons for why we built these things. One tangible example that we found is when Pastor Ken said, hey, I would like to introduce some robes when we, when we uh, ordain the new elders. And the immediate instinct was like, oh, that's weird and hierarchical and we can't do that. Well, why can't we? It's like, this is a creative expression of my heritage that got immediately pushed back on without any negotiation. So, so catch where we tend to do those things. And, and look, I have, I, I've been anti-robes before, but now I'm in a different season where I'm like, well, wait, maybe I overreacted to some of these things. Because there's a beautiful sense of ceremony built into them. Ways in which we create markers that say this is an important moment inside of our thing. I'm just going to rapid fire two or three other ideas here. Other goals that we have created, milestones that we hope to achieve, is that when a person of color comes into our environment, they don't feel like they have to code switch. Now, if you don't know what code switch means, it means use different language or act a little differently in front of a larger group of people. Because it's, it's different, so you just kind of go along to get along, but in the end, you're actually feeling like you're not yourself. And we've had that, that specific thing pushed back. I was, I, I'll never go there, because every time I do, I feel like I have to like, talk different and be a little different. And so I don't even know what it takes to get there, I just know I want that. I want someone to come in here and not feel like they have to shift themselves in order to be in this environment. It's my goal inside of this congregation, specifically those in majority standing, I don't just mean racially, I mean socioeconomically, all the different ways that you could imagine that, that they can begin to own, that our, that our majority standing people can begin to own the, the values of that to the extent that they hold us accountable. We're in the middle of one of those right now. And as tension-filled as it could be, we're trying to figure out how we're going to respond to the Palestine-Israel thing, right? And there's strong opinions on both sides in this congregation, and I felt a sense of like locking up. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do, so I've said nothing. That's not an adequate response. But the people in our congregation believed in it so much that they texted me and emailed me and Instagram, direct message, DM'd me. Yeah, that's it. There's my millennialism showing. More... Um, uh, 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 the last goal, and then we'll, we'll close it up for today. The last goal is just finding ways to get more representation inside of our leadership, non-white male leadership, to help with our gender um, kind of uh, diversity, to help with our racial diversity inside of this. Um, as we close, there's just this one kind of story that I wanted to say, and I know this is a long one, so thank you all for sticking with me. Um, the third point of clarity that I feel like is necessary is this thing that I'm just calling greasing the wheel of change. Hence, are you the kind of person that likes change or not? Um, somebody asked me one time, what does white privilege feel like? And my first answer 
that just came without even thinking too much about it was, it's like I'm living in a well-oiled machine. What I meant by that is um, that Pastor Ken and I often have different experiences here. Whereas we're all loving people and we're all trying and we're all doing it, I still am in a situation where when I want to make changes, do things, make decisions, it's like quick. People are like trusting me very quickly. Yeah, let's do that thing. But when Pastor Ken says, hey, this thing might need to be talked about, he feels like there's a handful of sand thrown in his machine. And it's not, again, outward resistance. It comes in all of the tiny little grains of, of those things where someone says, it's just not gonna be quite as smooth. So I get this positive assumption every time I wanna make a change, he gets questions and a cynical response. Well, why would we do it that way? I need to know all the details about why you have that change in mind before I'll even attempt to think about it. And that's not my experience. There's a difference that we found between appreciation versus participation that often in our context, the majority community can appreciate a cultural um, uh, shift or change or, or uh, uh, preference, but they won't actually participate in it. Point in case when we're asked to dance and we're like, <laughs> it's, it, it's funny, but if you're the person who loves to dance and you're on stage saying, let's dance, and that's all you see out there, we're like, we're trying. I did it. I got out of my comfort zone. And they're like, you all aren't even. If the expectation was this exuberant, yeah, let's do this. Can you see how you feel like, man, they don't really want to do this. And so we go away with two completely different perceptions. I appreciated that thing. Thank you for introducing it into my life. But because you didn't participate in it, it's like this sense of resistance that's even hard to name at times. Because it's like, well, you didn't, it seemed like you didn't really want to, to, to do it. This sense of us understanding that there's all these tiny little grains of sand that, again, don't always amount to, I need you to check A, B, C, D, done, we did it. Racial reconciliation achieved. It's in these tiny little grains of sand. All of these things feel like resistance to somebody who is trying to make change or an alternative perspective, or a new opinion. Um, if I had to gauge where we're at, um, you know, we have this moment where we have these two values, and sometimes, again, they come against each other. And uh, I want us to make changes here. I want us to make changes personally. I love this congregation. I've never been this far with any other church in my entire life. L let's, l that's beautiful. Right, I get to see that, not all of you get to because you're in the trenches of like, man, I need to die to myself more or gosh, I'm still not being represented enough and there's that tension, that fight, right? And I get to be the one to say, man, I do get to see where people have come very far and I've been in other churches where this would have been shut down from day one. We're not, we're not wokeness, we're not gonna go woke. Do you see what I'm saying? We get to stand here and say, man, this is actually a beautiful thing. The beloved community is within reach. Pastor Ken believes it. I believe it. Too bad Pastor Ken, sorry, he was sick today. I should have mentioned at the beginning, you're like, why isn't he here right now? He didn't want to take this smoke from this sermon, right? He's online, so shout out to Pastor Ken. He was just sick. He couldn't be here. But what I want you to see here is like we have successfully pushed off the shores of what we used to be, which was my hope with this. But now we're like in the middle somewhere. We haven't fully arrived at where we're at and it's gonna be confusing and we need to figure that out. But we did get off the shore. But now we need some navigation tools to move forward and our hope is to, in this reevaluation process, in the context of asking these questions, is to come with some more solidified things, both personally and congregationally, as the Lord makes it available to us. And, 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 um, and, I'll, and I'll just say this last, this last little piece. Inside of my wallet, some of you know this. I don't remember if I've ever showed you all this or not. Um, in my wallet is a piece of paper with a picture on it printed. I'm not going to show it to you. But it's a quote from Jamar Tisby that says, when racism isn't s stopped, it always leads to violence. And when I want to second guess that, I know that I have a picture of Emmett Till's body in my wallet to make sure that when there's a moment where I'm like, man, I, I really want to fight for this organic thing, but people die because of this one. I really want to fight for this organic thing, but somebody died in the streets back here. I really want to, I, lo I love the organic stuff. I believe that it has this beautiful 
uh, biblical bound, but someone died across the street because of this. And so when those things come into direct opposition, for me, it does, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that much of a content t- contest. That has to be stopped. And we get to be brought and invited into being a part of that change. Biblical-based, gospel-based justice and reconciliation. I want to pray for us um, and ask for God to do what he needs to do in the midst of our congregation to establish these things in a beautiful, safe, uh, not, not, actually I shouldn't say safe, in a beautiful, tension-thriving community. All right? Now, I don't, I don't believe that everyone probably agrees with everything I've said, and I'm sure there's some that think I didn't take today far enough, and that's fine. Please don't leave. Let's live in this tension together. Let's work this out together. Let's be unified in our goals and let's have these conversations. All right? Our current placement is that we've left the shores of safe, evangelical kind of white church and now we're going towards Revelation 7-9. So would you um, agree with that as I pray for that tonight or today? So Father, thank you for the challenge of Jesus, your example, thank you that we have a unique church. Not everyone follows after this value or these few values, these couple of values, but we have. And so there's all kinds of churches that do all kinds of things. This is what we've planted our flag on. We want to do it within the boundaries of your scripture and the things that you have brought into our attention. God, there's still so much more in the midst of knowing we've come so far. There's still so much further to go in my relationship with people who live in a minority status, make sure that I see that. So as we start the new year in 2024, and we seek out this invitation idea in our series, Lord, we do wanna become disciples of you. We wanna become better disciples of you. And we wanna do what you have specifically called to us in increasing measure in a cycle of knowing that clarity is not always possible, but every once in a while you just give us our next destination point. So Father, I pray that you would help clarify what still feels confused. Help us prioritize the things that you want to prioritize in a way that you would have us do that. Allow valleys to rise and mountains to fall in the way that you have um, uh, ordained. And let us be formed in likeness of who you are. One day better tomorrow than we were today. One day better today than we were yesterday. And continuing on into the days with the aroma and the scent of Christ on us. And we surrender to you, Father. We ask for your Holy Spirit to empower us and we look to your son to be our guide and our example. We ask for this all right now in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen, amen. Um, today, we've been doing our normal communion setup over